What a week. And what an offering. Thank you so very much for all the trust that represents. Really, really appreciate it. That you leave your personal control over vast sums of money and put it in the hands of others. Some of you have been doing that now for decades. We appreciate the amazing expression of trust to put at our disposal little short of a million pounds. I can't express enough how much we appreciate that. And it's so wonderful that there are guys, brothers and sisters from all over the world who are here because of that kind of generosity that was expressed last year. People keep coming up to me and saying, thank you so much, Terry, for bringing us in from Mexico, from India, other places. Thank you for bringing us, as though I did it. <laughs> hey, you're making this possible. You're making this possible. You're making it possible for us to stand with our brothers in such difficult circumstances and those that have uprooted and gone and left behind friends and family so let's go and your expression of commitment is saying yeah we're with you, you we don't just say goodbye we're with you and we're so grateful that you've released us for another year to go again You've released us to go for New Day again as well. Please keep praying for it as it's just a few weeks off now as we look to gather thousands of teenagers. A bigger crowd than this of teenagers. Next generation. I'd like to have been at the mobilized meetings. There's fire coming through that generation. And they better watch out because there's some fire behind them. There's 15 and 16 year olds passionate for God. Praying for one another in their tents, seeing healings, manifestations of his power. Going out on the streets, hearing the gospel, responding to serious preaching that calls for zealot. There's no easy kind of message. It's not kind of Jesus is cool. The message is radical. And they're saying yes. And you're helping that happen. Thank you so much. We so appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Thank you for taking time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule. Some of you have come further than others. I didn't come very far to get here. <laughs> I appreciate people coming all around the world. People even coming from the north of England. We'd like to get somewhere nearer, but there's no bed better than this, really. <laughs> Discordant note there. You better get your Bibles. Okay, let's turn to our Bibles. Time's going. I'm chatting on as though there was nothing else to happen here. We're going to be in Numbers and chapters uh, 10, more particularly 11. I spoke to you on the first day in connection with Moses. I felt God woke me up one morning, quite early actually, when we were away, Wendy and I, just vivid, just pouring stuff into my head and mind. I got up quickly and started 
writing things down, felt very, very stern. One or two people had prophesied over me as well that Moses would feature in the, the ministry that I bring. And I felt God gave me uh, what I've already shared, obviously, but also this which I want to share with you this morning. This is a leadership conference. I'm so thrilled that Mobilize is present to many of you in Mobilize. I know will find yourself called to leadership. And we haven't time to reiterate everything that I said on Tuesday evening, but simply to remember that when God's got a great idea, a great plan, a massive program, he's looking for men and women. He's looking for an individual who will respond to him with faith and integrity and wholeheartedness, not just for your own personal fulfillment, but because he's got a huge plan. And when God broke in on Moses' life, providentially caring for him, even as a small child, exposing him to all kinds of other temptations and uh, what the world could offer. God had his eye on two million people and beyond. He had his eye even on the ends of the earth, because those two million carried the light of the world among them in order to bring the ends of the earth to Jesus. And uh, God was looking for obedience in Moses. We saw the price that he paid. And as I say, we can't rehearse all that again. But the story of Moses doesn't end with a glorious offering of yourself. It may be, I know for myself, many years ago, when there used to be missionary conferences, uh, I remember going forward, it was regarded as a kind of noble thing to go and say, well, here I am, you know, I offer myself to you, uh, to serve you. And uh, sometimes you can think, well, that's it then. So it's going to be easy from now on. I've made the presentation. But certainly for Moses, that's not how it was. After that uh, amazing decision to put God first in his life, there followed huge tests, trials. And perhaps no man more than Moses shows us behind the scenes of the leader's life and tensions. And although it's a kind of finale session, I really want to bring this realistic word to you as we go on our way. We know God's given us a massive vision. Never has it been painted more broadly than at this conference and expressed with people coming in from further and further afield. We know we've got a great vision. Moses had an enormous vision, but he also faced huge challenges. And it's that durability in the midst of trial, difficulty, delay, and hardship. It's working through all that that will get us there. And without that durability, things fall away. And sometimes you can see things that seem to arrive on the Christian scene for a a short season. You look for them a few years later. Where did that go? That was getting the headlines a few years ago. Hey, people were all going after that. Paperbacks are bound. Hey, where's it gone? What happened to that? Oh, well, sadly, such and such. That person sadly had a disaster or well they got into some funny kind of teachings and hey beloved to keep going keep going keep going see another generation come up own the vision find our joshua's pressing through this is exciting stuff but it takes durability it's not just a thing of a moment and here in moses you're very much exposed to this reality Moses had the task of forming a company, formerly slaves, into a body of people who could inherit the land. He had to get them from A to B, from slavery to inheritance, over him, a holy God, and with him, a complaining lot of people. And where's the pressure point in that? 
Where's the pressure point? You know, from Egypt to Canaan, holy God, miserable people. In the middle of it, the pressure point is Moses. And that's how it often feels in leadership. And we're going to look at that this morning. I I, I love the passage in uh, Numbers 10. I've often preached on Numbers 10. I think it's one of the most extraordinary uh, statements of God's plan and purpose. Uh, When God sent them out and God spoke to Moses and it's all about silver trumpets. If you just kind of glance at it, you know, make two silver trumpets. Ah, this sounds exciting. You know, this rabble of slaves. Now we're into trumpets. Uh, Trumpets. We just have whips and difficulties. Now, hey, these people are getting some dignity. Trumpets. Positions, if you read the whole chapter, one tribe over here, another tribe over there, some going into the lead, some carrying holy objects. And, uh, and there's going to be this wonderful sense that we are setting out. In fact, that wonderful verse that I so loved preaching on over the years, setting out on the journey, they bump into someone and they say, hey, come with us. We'll do you good. The Lord has promised us good. We're on a journey. We're going to possess. We're into an inheritance. And this whole sense of momentum, shape, formation, not just a rabble now coming out of the Red Sea. and No, no, shaped up, looking down upon them. You could see like an army on the move, trumpets sounding, glory of God in the center. And that's this, come on, come with us, we'll do you good. That certainty, that confidence that's carrying them along. God's promised us good. Do you want to come on board? And then at the end of the chapter, this wonderful shout, Arise, O Lord! Let your enemies be scattered. Let those that hate you flee before you. Wow. What a crowd. So exciting. It really sums up so much of what's burning in our hearts. Today I want to look at the next chapter. It starts quite differently. We're just going to pick out a few verses here and there because of time. We're not going to read it all. Chapter 11 verse 1. This is not exactly what you expect as the next verse. After the end of chapter 10. The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. The people cried out to Moses. And Moses prayed to the Lord. And the fire died down. That picture of that tension, the people, Moses, the Lord. So the name of that place was called Taberah because of the fire of the Lord that burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. There's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans. Everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favour in your sight that you lay the burden of all these people upon me? Did I conceive all these people? 
Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry this people alone. The burden's too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, kill me at once. This is leadership fulfillment. <laughs> if I find favour in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tent of meeting. Let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that's on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you. So that you may not bear it yourself alone. Verse 21. But Moses said, the people among whom I am number 600,000 on foot. And you said, I will give them meat that they may not, they may eat a whole month. How shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out, told the people the words from the Lord. He gathered 70 men of the elders of the people, placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they didn't continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad, the other named Midad, and the spirit rested on them. They were also among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Midad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, the son of Nun, assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Father, we ask you please to help us in these closing moments to highlight what is appropriate for us as we go on our way. I ask for the help and thank you for the help of the Holy Spirit. Let each one of us be fortified forearmed for the battle, wised up by truth, empowered by the Spirit. We trust you for it, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, certainly Numbers chapter 11 is a frightening and alarming contrast to chapter 10. And if you look through the story of Moses, you will see these contrasts coming so quickly. You see how fickle the human nature of a man is, how quickly he can turn from celebration to complaining. And we see here, it was incited by the rabble. 
commentators would say that maybe they were impressed Egyptians and others who attached themselves to the Israelites as they left Egypt. The rabble may be actually non-Jews, but numbering in, just being among them, but tragically not having seen much in terms of identity, purpose, meaning, what it's all about, living just maybe for the moment, excited by uh, phenomenal signs and wonders, the plagues, the displays and demonstration of this awesome God, mighty Pharaoh humbled, and maybe fascinated to be part of this, but not seeing the big issues. So when tomorrow we're only eating manna, and then the next day and the next day, this rabble, who are not celebrating the whole vision, begin to complain. And tragically, they not only complain, but somehow it's kind of catching fever that spreads among the people of God. And complaining starts so quickly in this journey. Unsanctified, undisciplined people. Now, please, in talking about Moses and the Israelites, I don't want to in any sense suggest that we who are leaders have in our ranks a lot of unwilling people. I think our people are phenomenally willing. I think the offering we've just had, I know that represents not only individuals here, but individuals back at your home churches. And when you've shown the DVD and said, come on, we want to take a big offering. Hey, you've got such willing people. We used to see that at Stonely Bible Week in the pouring rain, year in and year out. Even among the teenagers at New Day. Willing? They're amazing. And so I don't want you to think, hey, poor us leaders, the rotten people and so on. But the reality is this, that even the Apostle Paul, in the splendors of the glorious early church, knew what it was to go through encountering complaints and difficulties. And Paul shows us in places like Corinthians and elsewhere, that sense of being sandwiched between pressures, even as Moses is so evidently, it seems in this chapter, sandwiched between the awesome, holy, mighty God and the people who haven't really understood what's happening and Moses is the pressure point. And there will be times, there were for the Apostle Paul, when you feel that pressure. And beloved, leadership is where you work out Walking with God, often in the midst of great pressures. We can show our tremendous uh, videos. They're so magnificently edited. We haven't got anybody there crying back in their study saying, Oh God, help. We don't show that bit. <laughs> you know, oh God, I thought others would come on this church plant. And, and all the agonies that we go through. We don't have like, let's have, well, perhaps we should do that one week. You know, an agony. Tonight's the agony evening. <laughs> Let's just watch this guy cry. <laughs> we live in a, a fallen world and the perfect has not yet come. And as we carry on with this breathtaking vision of heading out to what God's told us, going to inherit our inheritance, we will live in the midst of imperfections. We will be disappointed. You know, you'll get disappointed with yourself. You will encounter setbacks. Moses, so quickly, chapter 10, triumph, chapter 11, complaining. We will encounter such things. Where do they come from? Well, they come from, first of all, ungrateful hearts. Ungrateful hearts. They, they were actually escaping from slavery. Terrible bondage. God told the truth. He has said, I have heard their cry. I've seen the oppression that they live under. That's truth. 
Now they're free. Now they're going on. Now they're highly privileged. Every day, this supernatural miracle. But they've not learned this extraordinarily important principle that we are to abound with thanksgiving. You must cultivate a thankful heart. This is the will of God, that you give thanks. We're often wondering, what's the will of God? Well, here's one thing, the will of God. Give thanks. Keep on giving thanks. Cultivate a thankful heart. Discipline yourself to be thankful, even maybe when things don't look good. But cultivate an awareness of appreciation. Let that be your style. When you come into a room, let's not feel the temperature just dropped. In he came. No, that, there's a gratitude that should characterize the people who understand they've been redeemed. The gratitude is fundamental to the people of God. They had not learned the secret of contentment. Learning the secret. Paul tells us in chapter, in chapter 4 of Philippians about learning the secret of contentment. He said, I know, he said, I have learned, Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to, give, how to live in prosperity. In every and any circumstance, I have learned the secret. Gordon Fee's commentary says that the phrase that he's using there is almost like one of those introduction into a strange religion. You learn the secret. You learn the initiation rites. He says he kind of borrows that phrase. He's saying, I've learned the secrets. I've learned the secret of being filled, going hungry. Both having abundance and suffering need. In every circumstance, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I've learned the secret, how to be content. There's people out in the streets, people trying drugs, trying alcohol, they'd love to know. Are you content? How did you find contentment? I mean, that's the great longing. Is there, is there contentment? That's why the advertising wants to just inflame their ideas, excite them for a moment, to escape the boredom or the fear or the anxiety. And we've found contentment, but beloved, there is a secret to learn, as it were. And if we're not careful, the rabble can get to you. And those who've not seen anything but talk a lot can get to you. And if you're not careful, you become shaped like them. And, and, and you've not learned the secret of contentment. I mentioned a guy who was on this platform, I mentioned him on Tuesday when I was speaking, I didn't say his name or his current context, I told some of the difficulties he was going through, but a man stood on this platform last year, a man recently converted from the Middle East, and the latest email I just read this last couple of days, coming out, he's now out of prison, where he was in prison, where his life was in total danger. And I can't go into details, but to read the email of how he's lying on just concrete floor among the lice and the cockroaches. And when he came out, got, he's got an amazing out, he said, it was wonderful, I could talk to people about Jesus. I got many opportunities to talk about Jesus. But, but I thought you said you were, I thought you said there were cockroaches. I'm not fond of cockroaches. I've seen occasional cockroaches. I remember once when I was in India and I, I, I was asleep and I, I just turned my face and, and I, I thought it was a piece of wrapped up uh, paper from a suite. 
my face went on. And I, and I just picked it up and threw it. And I thought, that's weird, that didn't land. <laughs> and uh, so, I, 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 I mean, I should have heard click, click, you know. So I turned the light on, and just by the light, there's this ghastly cockroach. Ring, ring. <laughs> I, I get the biggest thing that I declare. Cockroach! I hate cockroaches. This guy, he's just been in prison with cockroaches and lice on a concrete floor, and he's saying, "Praise God! I had opportunities to witness." Do you think he may have learned a secret? Paul says, "I've learned the secret of how to be content." What's the next line? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We so often want to take a verse like that, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right out of the context and put it up here, you know, it's like mighty healing evangelist or whatever. I can do all things. Hey, Paul's saying, I went through suffering, difficulty, this, that. I can do all things through Christ. I've learned the secret. Beloved, when churches go through pressure times, and some start complaining. If you haven't learned, if, you, if you're not a thanksgiver, if you haven't learned the secret of contentment, you are very vulnerable. You can become part of the problem instead of part of the answer. Because you haven't learned the secret. You need to be contented in Christ. We're on a great journey. So he's content. They've not learned that secret. They had undisciplined tongues. They began to speak. Gene Edwards says, the ability to see faults is a cheap and common gift. <laughs> James says, the tongue is a small member. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small member. You know there's a quite a long section. I was reading it all through again this morning in James. But I'll just read that little quote to you. The, the tongue. How great a fire. You know, sometimes our televisions are filled with uh, forest fires. You think, how did that ever sweep through that area? I've been down in South Africa sometimes. We see a whole area was taken out. I remember uh, have Sam Poe explain to me about forest fires and great fires that have happened in the USA. We know down in Australia, massive forest fires. Very often, you trace it back, you trace it back, what to? Some foolish person who threw down a cigarette at a time of dryness and vulnerability. Churches go through times of vulnerability. And one undisciplined tongue. How great a fire. One member. One foolish phone call. One silly criticism. One half-truth. One question. I wonder what he thought. I wonder what he really meant. What was his real... One tongue. Hey, let's discipline our tongues. The Bible says there are things God hates. And he really hated this murmuring. They had selective memories. You can see this again and again in the story of Moses, but Numbers 16, 13 is perhaps one of the most beautiful 
distortions of their memory that there ever was. You have brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what it says in Numbers 16.30. Talk about distortion of the facts. Moses says, come on, I'm going to lead you to a land of milk and honey. They go through a few setbacks and say, you brought us out from a land flowing with milk and honey. They're talking about slavery, backs being beaten, no hope at all. A land fl- I mean, distortion. Distorted memories. It's so easy to get a distorted memory. Do you remember when? As though it was always great. It's a small thing, it says, that you brought us out of this land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in this wilderness. Also, you make yourself a prince over us. Wow, what happened to these people? It says that God hated it. God hates murmuring. I wonder if we really take that seriously. I've certainly found in my own study and preparation a seriousness about that perhaps I've not felt before or seen before God hates it and it says he was exceedingly angry now we mustn't be frightened of anger the Bible is unashamed to speak of God's anger there's no apology there's no attempt to conceal God's fury it's part of the perfection of God He's utterly holy, righteous, and just. Therefore, his anger is a pure demonstration of his holy, perfect being. I got so stirred and drawn into this, I must confess, I kind of left my study for a while when preparing. I just took one of my books out to read, a a book on the attributes of God, just to read a chapter about the anger of God. And I I found it stirred me, it affected me. I just want to now kneel down and pray and think, oh God, you're a God who knows anger. God is not to be airbrushed, but worshipped. The authentic God, the real Bible God. The God who's sometimes utterly furious, the real one. And that fury isn't God having a bad day. It's not like that's the God of the Old Testament, bad days sometimes. This is the real, authentic, pure, holy God who sees murmuring as hateful. He hates it with a perfect, holy hatred. We need to... Be disciplined in our tongues. God hates it. It says in Proverbs 6, there are six things that God hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. You find things like haughty eyes and a lying tongue and things that split brothers. God, he's not indifferent. Oh, it's happening again. He hates it. Let's get to know God better. I'm so longing to know God better. I long to know his power. I long to see him heal the sick. I long to see him save the lost. I want to know him though. I don't want just numerical growth. I want to know him. And he's, he's inclined to be very angry sometimes with no apology. Let's know the authentic Bible God. But I've got to rush on because I'm talking about the impact on the leader. The leader became the centre of the pressure between the holy God and the immature people. And true leaders endure this from time to time. You can't just change your job. You can't just say, well, I think I'd like another church, please. People do. 
But as John Piper says, brothers, we're not professionals. You don't have to change your job. You don't say, oh, can I have another church, please? Moses, there was no other church going. This was Moses' assembly in the wilderness. You don't just switch. You don't just get out of here. But the leader feels the pressures. And some of the reasons Moses felt the pressures are some of the reasons that we sometimes feel the pressures. Let me quickly highlight a few. You're the one, often, the leader is the one who's seen the visions. Moses certainly was. Moses had an encounter with God at the burning bush that turned his life upside down. And God told him he had a great plan for his life. Anyone called into ministry, I'm talking about someone called into ministry, not someone who simply thought, I think I might try that as a profession. I'll go to a college, get trained. I'm talking about someone who just knows he's got no choice. You know, I can't do anything else. God's called me. It'd become obedience, a disobedience if I don't go on now. You're not free just to say, well, I'm out of here. Because you're not a free agent. But the problem often comes to seem to focus in you. So when the Israelites have problems, their problems, they're frightened to speak against God. So Moses is the nearest guy around. And he seems to represent God. Now obviously we're in a new covenant. And you must apply that as we go through. But nevertheless, leadership very often, when you're called, God whispers things into your heart. He puts a vision before you. So the leader... As we heard from PJ the other day, the leader is leading. He's ahead. By implication. He's ahead and leading. So you carry a vision. And that vision kind of nourishes you. It excites you. It motivates you. And even when things are bad, and even when you're eating manna with the others, somehow it doesn't seem to bother you so much. Because what you've seen, what Moses saw. Moses said, you're going to bring us into the land. You're taking us to your holy mountain, the sanctuary, oh God. He must have seen down through the ages. He's in Hebrews 11. He's seen the unseen. It just captivates him. He can pull back from the day at the end of the day. Oh God, where are you going to take us to? The rabble haven't seen that. They just see the manna. But you as a leader very often are ahead of the people because you've seen something. You're stirred and motivated and you're the one leading into the future. And the very fact that you're leading people sometimes causes consternation. You're the problem. Because you're saying, come on, let's go. And in your ranks you may have people who begin to get scared. And out of compassion we need to understand, as Moses had to learn, these are slave people. They're not a mature people. They've never known what it is to be mature, raise families, Choose which house to buy. Make selections. No, they're very immature people. They've never been given dignity. They've never learned to trust. So Moses has to learn. And and sometimes people join you who've been in other churches where the leader said, come on, we're doing this. And they remember, yeah, but when that happened, the whole place fell apart. And we remember how they started bullying us. And we remember that. So sometimes people are not just a clean white sheet. So come on, let's go. They're not saying, oh sure, let's go. They, haven't, they weren't at the burning bush when you were there. They're just hearing you say, we're going, it's going to probably cost us to get this building now and press on. It'd probably be like a million and a half. They say, what? million and a half? I'm one of the businessmen here. I expect they're looking to me. And I remember what happened in that other place. And so you're just saying, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, whatever it costs. They're thinking, I know what's going to cost me. 
So you're carrying people who've got wounds and hurts very often. They don't have your certainties. They wonder if you've considered everything. Did you weigh the whole thing? Did you look at other possibilities? I'm a businessman, did you ask me? I know about property. He's a bit naive, he was at Bible college. I bring that to the party and you kind of handle that. You are saying, come on. For some it's just unsettling their comfort zones. Change isn't comfortable. A leader loves change. <laughs> He's kind of stirred by change. Just go. You see someone like Tom Eaton up here and say, well, come on, who's coming to Japan with me? You think, wow, that's a leadership call. That's pretty uncomfortable stuff. We can say, well, we're going to plant out. We're going to break down. We're separating who will come. You will meet difficulties because you're ahead. As a direct result of being ahead. Moses had seen something. I know for myself, when we first tried to introduce life in the spirit, a church filled with the presence of God. I went to a church, a free evangelical church. All they knew was four hymns on the wall. And I said, we want the presence of God here. We're just going to open up for a little worship. That's going back to the very early pioneering battles. We just want the presence of God. No, people, what are you talking about? Well, we just want to be open. We just, anyone can pray out, sing out. And gifts of the Spirit. Think, what? I remember when we were making some progress against the backdrop of huge battles and tensions. And two of our most godly people in the church... Elderly, ex-exclusive brethren couple, sweet, godly people, used to host our midweek Bible study in their home before our building was up. And he came to the door, came in my home, and he gently said to me, I'm sorry, we'll have to leave. I said, what? He said, if you are going to allow the ladies to pray out loud in the meeting, we'll have to leave. And they were, I would say, some of the most godly people in the church. When we were going with some very undisciplined people and immature and very easy to criticize, you would never have heard a criticism. These people were beautiful. But they couldn't handle that because of their tradition. And Well, we've never believed that women should be allowed to speak in the meeting. And so you had to, in the midst of watching very immature people fighting one another, as we're trying to bring in a New Testament church, you watch the most godly couple in the church leave. Oh, Lord. And then the elders say, see, see, see what's happening here. If they leave, Lord, help. Leaders face pressure. They carry pressure, unexpected pressure. Sometimes you can feel as a leader resentment because, like Moses, you may have paid a big price. I was talking to one of our pastors at one time, so I'd like to call this guy out to be full-time. I had this conversation only a few weeks back, but he said he's on 100000 in his job. And we're not exactly offering 100000 <laughs> Unless you know of a church. Anybody? And, and you may have made that kind of, you may have, you may have, yeah, you said goodbye. I know there are people in this room who said goodbye to huge salaries. And you can hit pressure when people turn against you and think, I paid a big price for this. 
You know, you just turn up Sunday. I gave up my job. I gave up the sort of home that my wife could have expected us to have. My kids could have had. You don't know how much I gave up. And so that can intensify the pressure. Moses could certainly say, I gave up a palace for you lot. (laughs) Amazingly, we're following Jesus who gave up an awful lot more. And what did he do? Well, he kind of washed their feet. Jesus modeled something breathtaking and different. No one can claim they gave up anything. I had the high privilege of meeting Alan Ewan when I was in China, who spent 25 years in prison. We sat in our hotel room one night and we talked to this like an angel from heaven. And I said, I said, you paid such a price. In prison, 21 years, six kids. He left them when they were little. He came up when they were grown. I said, you paid such... And he just beamed back at me. And he said, nothing compares with the cross. Nothing compares with the cross. Just happy man. Pressing on with God. We need to win big battles. Otherwise, if you let resentment grow up, you say, I could still have... I could have done that. I had a job. I could have done. I could have still been. And people may tell you that. Even parents or relatives who maybe don't know the Lord yet. You gave up a job. I thought this thing you were going to start was going to be something. Pressures you can carry. And sometimes they think, why do I have these people? That was the question Moses had. <laughs> I know I could do it. Just give me a better team, Lord. It's just, why this love? Give me a real leader. Give me, give me, if only you could give me a, it's like, it's like Abraham. I could do it, but with her? <laughs> I, I'm a man of faith. I believe I can produce a child. We could be like that. We say, Lord, I'm, I'm a man of prayer. I feel this, but with this church, these people. God says, no, this is where you're going to do it. This barren situation. It can lead to huge questions, right? Did I give birth to them? Why do I have to carry them? This is the inside track, you know, with the leader and his God. How can I carry them? How can I carry them into your promises? See, the size of the promise, Lord, you promised so much. How do I carry this lot? Where am I going to get meat for these people? I start meditating on this. You think, oh God, don't you feel, I feel at home with this. How do I get sermons for these people? How do I get meat for them? How can I feed them? How often the leader is in this kind of dilemma? How can I get pastoral wisdom? How can I get hope? How can I get strength? How can I get courage? How can I look at the figure they're talking about for this building? And how, can, how can I lift them to that? How do I get meat to feed them? Some of you battle through a week trying to get a sermon for Sunday. Lord, where's the meat? Is there anything in this book of any interest at all? <laughs> Anyone been there, done that? God, what? I can't see anything here. <laughs> At least a series is helpful, isn't it? Well, this is the passage. Yeah. Somehow, dig something out of it. Where 
where do I get meat? It's the same. Jesus said to the twelve, you feed them. Think, what? <laughs> but you, you're, you're the pressure point. You fear this. This is what gets to the leader. I'm talking about the pressures, the real pressures of leadership. Fear that God is calling you to do more than you can do. That's the scary bit. And, and it's even more scary when it comes to a conference like this. And everyone's shouting, vision, vision, success, on we go. And you're sitting there, oh, I don't know if I can do it. They've already passed us. I heard that church got off to such a flying start. They're through 150 already. We haven't hit the 100 yet. I don't know if I can do it. Now fear is a huge weapon. When you think, God, I, can't, I don't know if I've got it. I don't know if I can feed these people. Maybe I haven't got it. That's what Moses is saying. Maybe I haven't got it. Until he comes almost to think, is it my fault? Beloved, I really want to serve you here as before we go. This is a very dangerous place and it gets to this terrible thing. I want to lose my life. Kill me. Elijah got there. Take my life. I, I've got nothing more to give. We shout success. We want to lift faith. But I want us to see the reality. I was so blessed when a, a leader of a, another stream said to me when he read my book, No Well, One Paths. He said, I read your book. He said, thank you for it. He said, I cried several times. Thank you for being so honest. I cried. I wanted to be honest. It was, it was hard. It's been hard. It's wonderful. But sometimes it's so hard for you. And for many women here, it's hard seeing your guy go through that kind of pressure. And especially if there's a bit of hostility and his name. And you think, I know this man, I know his pure heart. This is so unfair. And you live through that. These are real pressures that you go through. And I want to just take you on to the leader's vulnerability. He asks these kind of questions. Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Or as the NAS translates it, why have you been so hard? Why have you been so hard on your servant? NIV, why have you brought trouble? Why have you brought trouble? You brought trouble. She's getting distorted now. Why have you brought trouble? Why have I not found favour in your sight? NIV, what have I done to displease you? Now this is where we're in real danger. It's not just problems with these people. It's the pressure. I've got to produce something I can't produce. How can I fit 600? How can I feed them? I don't think I can. And this, the enemy is now moving in. Because what have I done? I, you're not pleased with me anymore. And losing that sense of the pleasure of God is a terrible place. That's why I want us all to be a grace movement, understanding grace. Because there's such pressure out there and there's such an accuser who will put you down, especially leaders, especially leaders. We often think, well, we want to produce grace in the church, especially leaders, because the enemy, if he can get your head down, 
If you can get your head down, you either give up or you start loading it on the people. So we need to understand this genuine battle here. When the pressure seems to imply that God's not there. Where's God? I thought you'd be with me. God, I feel I've lost God. That's the worst place you can get. I thought I lost God. Have I got his disapproval? What have I done? Don't let me see my wretchedness. Just kill me. Don't let me see my wretchedness. Don't let me face my own ruin. It's translated in the NIV. That's a mixture of fear and deep depression, scared of the future. And if you were just a professional, you'd say, Superintendent, can I please change my church? Or whoever, bishop, whatever. I'd like a move, please. If you were just a professional, you just get out. Oh, I can find another career move. It's not the way through. It's not the answer at all. But the longing to just get out can be very, very real. How did Moses get so low? We must press through this quickly. He became completely preoccupied with the problem. That's how he got so low. He got co- he's saying 600,000 men. Probably that represents 2 million people, most would think. Women, children. How do I feed 2 million? There's 2 million of them. Where can you get enough meat? They're saying they want meat. They hate this manna. Where do I go? Look, Lord, how long would it take? Where would you find the meat? He's trying to work it out in his brain. How would you go and get the meat? And, and the fish, where do you get fish in a desert? And so he's kind of looking at the details. 600,000, all the women, the children. I don't know where I'm going to get the meat. Where do I get the fish? If there's fish, he's trying to kind of work the whole deal out. He's got his mind right down into the problem. Completely focusing on human resources and human limitations. What is God's answer? It's a wonderful one. Verse 23. The Lord said to Moses... Is the Lord's hand shortened? Can we say that together, please? Is the Lord's hand shortened? Once more. Is the Lord's hand shortened? I'd love to hear how he said it. I don't suppose you gave much thought to think, how shall I say this? I'll just do the parrot thing, straight back to the preacher. But I wonder how it sounded. What was God communicating? Was it anger? Was it outrage? Was it compassion? So for a little pause. And in a minute, I'd like you to say it again. Is the Lord's hand shortened? But I'd like you to think, I wonder how God would have said it. So we're not going to listen in for you, but let's just say it once more. Is the Lord's hand shortened? Say it. Is the Lord's hand shortened? I wonder how he said it. See, when Moses came out, it says they went through the Red Sea. One of the things that Moses celebrated was, by the Lord's great arm, he's brought us through. He will bring us through. All our enemies will be at our side. They'll be turned to stone as the people of God march through by his great arm. Uh, How am I going to feed all these things? Uh, Is my arm shortened? Hey, I thought, you know, two chapters back we were saying, what an arm. What happened to my arm? 
by the 600,000. Hey, it was a Red Sea. There was a Pharaoh's army. It was impossible. Yeah, I know, we celebrated the Lord's great arm. But he sang that when the river, the sea had already opened. Now we're in trouble. Oh God, what about my arm? Now, I, I've, I've thought of it a lot over these days. I thought, I wonder how he said it. You look at it similarly in the, in the New Testament. Peter's walking on water. He sees the waves and he begins to go. Jesus says to him, oh, you little faith. How did he say that? In Numbers 14 and verse 11, when they say we can't get into the land, the giants are too tall, The cities are too walled, the defences are too great, we're grasshoppers, we can't get in. And God says to them, how long are you going to spurn me? He said, oh no, no, we're not talking about you, Lord. No, we weren't actually even thinking about you. We're thinking about (laughs) these walls, Uh, it's the giants, the walls, Um, and uh, us, you know, we're small. And God says, I I think it's amazing, God says, how long will you spurn me? Um, What? I was looking at the message. I thought, I wonder how Eugene Peterson translates it. He says, how long will these people treat me like dirt? Wow. Wow. He said, Lord, we can't enter. I think they're big. The giants are very big. The cities are very walled. How long are you going to treat me like dirt? But Lord, we weren't even... Um, no, it's this... Uh, uh, We've got to understand, beloved, we said we're going to plant a church in. You know, you saw the list. Hull, Hartlepool, Cardiff, you know, on and on and on. We're, but you hit this problem. But Lord, the problem's about, let's not, I don't want to hear God say to me, how long are you going to treat me like dirt? I don't want to hear that, Lord, please. Moses woke up pretty quick, I think. There's no, there's no suggestion that somehow God was being hard with him. He doesn't even kind of answer that question. He doesn't, we say, oh, how hard you've been with me. Is there anything wrong with your servant? Forget it, you're my chosen servant. What are you talking about, anything wrong with your servant? What about my arm? <laughs> you look down the concordance of the arm of the Lord, some marvellous verses. His great arm is going to bring us through. Amen? His great arm. He'll make bare his Arm. Paul says, who's sufficient for these things? New Testament, he's talking about all the moaning Corinthians. They're saying, you didn't say this, and you're not much of an apostle anyway. You said you'd do that, then you did this. And Moses, Paul says, who's sufficient for these things? Then he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who makes us sufficient. So we will not lose heart. We will speak faith. We will go on. Hallelujah. He, he knows the reality of that cry that comes from the soul. Who, who can do, I can't do this. Who is sufficient? It's a similar cry. The New Testament, Corinthian church. Who's sufficient? But my sufficiency is from God who makes me sufficient. Amen. It's our faith that's going to overcome. It's the reality of his total sufficiency. No, leadership is a great place to get to know God. It's reality. A lot of people only have a few crises in their life. Leaders have crises every week. (laughs) 
Some people can go right swanning through life thinking, oh, I can make it. Leaders know they're desperately in need all the time. Paul says we die daily. Some of us, you know, we die at least monthly. God, help, help. You're cast on God. You're forced back onto God. But it's in finding this great arm of the Lord. And hearing God say, you treating me like dirt? No, 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 Lord. We're full of confidence here. <laughs> Let's get our faith. This great, great. I had an experience in this last seminar meeting. I was longing for God. <laughs> And I'm praying, oh God, you promised. And some of us uh, prayer and fasting, some other pastors here. And there was a wonderful prophecy that came. It said, you're going to go to Brighton and uh, you're going fish- fishing like a guy in a little, a little, <laughs> a little boat. And, and you're going to put the hook in and you're going to catch a whale. And I can't remember the wording, of course, but it said something like, it changes the fishing out. <laughs> you know, you hook, whale. And I'm praying, I'm crying to God, I'm crying to God. Lord, you promised a whale. You promised a whale. And I've got in my mind, kind of free willy. Because uh, <laughs> it's a bit disproportionate, you know, to the hook. I thought, free willy would be good. I'd like one like that. I was really in earnest. God, God, I'm just praying. You promised a whale. You promised a whale. You promised a whale. And suddenly, suddenly, before my gaze, I saw like immediately not this whale, like this free willy. I saw this grey, barnacled shape, like three yards from my face and filling my vision, go up out of the water. And just kind of... I thought, forget free willy. It was wonderful. And I saw this eye. And I suddenly saw this spout. And this joyful, magnificent creature bounce and splash and leap and kind of look back with this eye. I thought, yes, Lord, yes. You don't catch a whale with a hook. Not even a free willy. You know, you just, it was just majestic and magnificent and huge. I thought, God's ready for this? You want to come with me? You don't catch him, he catches you. God has done a work here. Such a work. I felt, I felt, it's like now we're just riding the back, you know. Go, Lord! God, God's arm, his power, his all-sufficiency. We don't send out people like Pete and Sue to Australia saying, wow, you know, you can do Australia. You're a big guy. No, no, God goes with them. God goes with them. God's all sufficiency. I've got two more points and I've got no more time. What time are we supposed to get out? Are we all right? 
Okay, we're just going to go quickly. I, do, I, I, I just feel I want to just say it quickly. I want to go on to just the, the 70, and it's another theme, but I must be very headlined quick. The appointment of the 70. There's two things that come. God, two answers come to Moses. One is the manifestation of total adequacy in God. The second is partnership and multiplication and impartation and a growing team. And it must have implications for the 70 in the New Testament. The whole sense of multiplication, ongoing anointing, and so on. We haven't time to get into detail, which I'd love to, but we must just quickly do the headlines. First of all, gather for me, verse 16. Gather for me. This is not some human appointment. This is going to be a God thing. It's related to God. Leadership is by divine appointment. It's not by human preference. No man takes this to himself. It's a God deal. It's with God's anointing. It has charismatic implications or it's nothing. It's not the product of very clever brains who know even how to study the Bible and dissect it and shape it all up. It's God's call. It's God's spirit or it's nothing. So we've got to see that, first and foremost. Bring them to me. Gather those you know to be elders. People of proven elders and officers. Let them stand together with you. All these phrases are full of meaning which we can't stop with. Ultimately, God says in verse 17, I will come down and meet with you at the tent of meeting, the place where the Spirit was going to be manifest. There's God's profound involvement. I will take the Spirit that's upon you and put it on them. Serving God requires Holy Spirit anointing, nothing less. Functioning in a God-empowered capacity. I just want to spend a moment, I would, with just a moment, I was struck by this. Not simply, I will come. Bring the 70, I'll fill them with my spirit. It's this a strange thing. I will take the spirit that's upon you. But most translations, and I flipped around a few, use a capital S. Their implication, they think this is the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit doesn't seem that the Holy Spirit's coming down independently. It's the spirit that's upon you. I'll put upon him. Somehow, this Holy Spirit is identifiable with Moses. And here again you find with Elisha when he's crying out to Elijah and he says, I want a double portion of your spirit. Your spirit. Surely we are not just talking about a man's spirit, although the cry is, the spirit of Elijah rests upon Elisha. What did they mean? Surely we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Surely we're talking about God the Holy Spirit. And yet the way it's referred to, and Elisha says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And the thing that stirred and struck me was obviously again prefiguring the 12, the 70 of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ The spirit who rested upon Christ. Jesus said, you know him for he's been with you. He will be in you. How Jesus anointed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit who went around doing good. Healing all who were oppressed. For God was with him. And Jesus could say to them, you know him. He's been with you. He will be in you. And they must have thought, hey, it's going to be like, it's going to be like it was on him. The Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ. The Spirit, how he manifested himself through Christ. The Holy Spirit. These things 
we haven't time. But just to, to see, let's not dilute. When Moses is saying that, when God says some of the spirits on you, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, no question. But somehow the way the Holy Spirit's been manifested through Moses, his wisdom, his faith, his courage, his tenacity, his insight, something of the way Moses related, I'm going to take something of that and put it. This isn't just some kind of, oh yeah, tick, tick. No, that's spirit. Beloved, I've been so privileged to be here. I felt very privileged to be in Rob's seminars this week. Learned so much. I would urge you. As I would, I've looked at the list this morning of all the seminars. I think, well, I want to get every seminar speaker's notes. I want to get every CD. I mean, you have been so fed in these seminars. So please don't misunderstand me. But I felt, yeah, I want to learn much more about the coming of the Spirit. The impartation of the Spirit. Not formally. The laying on of hands. Bob did a great session on the laying on of hands. Thoughts I've never had before. Insights I've never seen before. That impartation factor. And for us in ministry to be raising up people that we too can be involved in impartation. Please get those CDs. Listen to them. We don't stop with that anymore. But let's be aware. If we're going to go and take towns and plant churches... It's one thing doing it in our own country, it's challenging. But to go and say, let's go and do it in Pakistan. Let's go and do it in Japan. Let's go and do it. We need God. Or you'll get a cosy little group. And some people who've not even pressed through, and I don't mean to be judgmental, but haven't pressed through to go after God, they said, oh, let's do church like that. We just meet. We can meet in the home, we do church. I think, God, I don't want churches that we plant that say, well, we're only a few, but it's nice. We're bringing in the kingdom of God. We want to continue the work Jesus began. We need the spirit that was upon him, don't we? That divine energy. And we need to learn much more about the impartation of the spirit actually in meetings that are charged with power. Oh, yes. We are going to see more and more of that as we go forward. And my last point the leader's motivation. We just look at it. You're familiar with it. Eldad and Medad. Two of the guys who didn't turn up but still received the spirit and prophesied. And the story of how a young man ran and said, hey, these two guys are prophesying. And Joshua, that great fan and servant and disciple of Moses, says, my Lord, forbid them. Moses, I can't imagine the look he must have given him. This story starts, and I felt God just whispered this in my heart as I was finishing uh, preparing. The story starts with opponents of Moses complaining, complaining, complaining. These people are problems. I'll tell you what, the end of the story has got another problem. A supporter of Moses. Say, go on Moses, you're unique. You're the knees, bees, knees. You're the one. You're the one. You can do it. Don't let anybody else speak. Don't let anybody else prophesy, Moses. Come on. Hold your position. The leader's got pressures from all kinds of angles. The leader is going to keep going to the end. He's got to learn to handle complaining and loyal support. But actually, not too well-founded, perhaps. Don't let them prophesy. Preserve your position. 
Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. Peter said, you can't do that. David's going through a tough time. A guy starts shouting at him, hurling abuse. And one of these loyal fans says to him, shall I go and take his head off? I mean, these are these mean guys. And David said, no, no, leave him, leave him. The long term, beloved, you've got to learn to handle opposition. You've got to learn to handle praise. That maybe gets you distorted. Oh, come on, don't let them prophesy. That's going to really take away from you. Joshua didn't know that God had once, actually it looks like it happened more than once. You find it in Exodus 32, I wanted to read the message to you, I won't. But when God offers Moses, God comes, God says, I am furious with these people. I will blot them out and Moses, I'll start again with you. I've had enough of the whole lot. We can all be children of Moses. Forget Abraham, it's you. <laughs> See, most, Moses has already had an offer you can't refuse from God. And he refused it. And you read the message, I know it's a funny old translation, but he kind of, hey God, come on, come on. What about Abraham? What about Isaac? What about Jacob? What about your promises? What about what were the Egyptians say? You couldn't do it? You couldn't. And this guy is disinterested. Because he's... he's, he's He's got his eye on the plot. The plot is glorifying God in all the earth. The plot is not endorsing him. See, Joshua lost the plot in that moment of temptation. He lost the plot. Preserve yourself. He lost the plot. Happily, Moses knew the plot very well. That's why it's good for us, beloved, not to see our Christian walk as a private deal. To get the kind of canvas painting that Dave Devonish gave us the other day. That big canvas is so helpful to us. See the big picture. It'll help you win little battles. Because it's not about you. It's about him and his glory. So Moses won the battle. He said, no, no, I wish they were all prophets. So I used to be the worship leader. This other guy joined the church. Plays a guitar a bit. They say they want him to do it now. What, you mean him? Yeah. But you've always been. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know a church in the States that I love. Where two young guys left the church then. We're leaving if you're not going to have us. Whole crowd left with them. Church in disarray. Church in disarray. Why? Well, I thought I was going to lead the worship. What about my gift? Come on. Johnny, come lately. See, the church either grow, we either keep growing, we keep pressing on into what God has for us. And we don't suddenly cave in here or cave in there. Because, well, he was offended. She was offended. And then, well, you've got to tread carefully around her. I can be in your church. You know, you, you say, well, we could go forward, but, you know, it's so-and-so's mum, and you, you, can't, you can't say anything there. Okay. So the whole church waits while so-and-so's mum is cotton-wooled. Come on. It's not about you. It takes courage. Numbers 10 
tells us the picture. We're heading for a land. You take the right, you take the left, you carry the holy things, you blow the trumpets. Chapter 11 says, here's the reality. All kinds of problems. But beloved, we're still going to take the land. We're still going to do this great thing. God's going to give us grace. And there are times when you think, Lord, I've got nothing left to give. Don't forget, God's going to say from heaven to you, what about my arm? (laughs) When when you're in agony, just remember it. What about my arm? Is my arm short? How did he say it? Let's stand to pray. The musicians, come up, please.